for May 12th, 2014. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 306. Unfamiliar with Jack Bauer or tea, but mostly tea. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I'm Matt Rather, and we have with us an international uh, panel, not only a, a multi-coastal, or a bi-coastal, I should say, because multi implies more than three, though if our international guest is on a coast, it is a multi-coastal panel, but a, uh, a bilateral panel, a uh, bi-national panel as well. So uh, we'll get to... Uh, all our topics, and we'll get to our um, uh, our international guest in a second. But first, panel, your question of the week. It is Mother's Day as we record, because we record these podcasts on Sunday uh, and, uh, and release them on Monday. So let's uh, ask a mother-related question. Um, tell, us a, tell us a story or a fun fact or something uh, about your mother that has to do with popular culture. Um, first in the alphabet, drink, because it's not Pete Fenzel. It's Ben Adams. Hey, happy Mother's Day, everybody. Yeah, happy Mother's Day to you as well. Uh, so I, I was trying to think about this, and I think that it's not one pop culture property in particular, but I'll just note that you know, overthinking it is all about kind of getting, in and getting together with your friends and talking about the pop culture that you love. And I found that that's been a, a great way of just catching up with my mom about like what shows we're watching recently. And I recently had the pleasure of you – because know, about half of the shows my mom watches are shows that I'm not really going to get into. She likes American Idol, some of the other uh, talent shows that I just quite – can't quite fully get into or Bravo shows, but at fifty percent are like top-notch dramas or things like that on uh, on TV. So we, we recently talked about Revenge, which if you're not watching is a fantastically trashy show on ABC. Nice. Um, and uh, but very recently, I was very happy. Well, I wasn't happy about this first part that she she was just feeling a little under the weather, so she was just kind of in the house for a couple days, and uh, she discovered Breaking Bad on Netflix. And spent like three days binge watching Breaking Bad. What? Uh, yes, exactly. Which like my dad can't stand. He watched like one episode. It was like I'm not watching some guy's life fall apart. But my mom loved it, and so that that's provided some fruitful conversations. But it falls apart so awesomely. Exactly. <laughs> Um, the, uh, the everybody's parents watch the the reality competition shows, especially I've noticed in in uh, my friends' parents, The Voice. Everyone watches The Voice. Everyone's parents watches The Voice, and they all think that they're the only one. So they tell it to you. They like lean in as though they're about to tell you a secret, and they say, "Have you heard of this show called The Voice?" Uh, as though you know, as though it were not the most popular thing on television in in the states. It's it's a show that prizes its its fake mystery because it's it's got the people you know turning around in the chairs they can't see the uh, the singer. So you know it's like it's fake mystery because of course you've been watching the cheesy three minute little clip about their life story, so you know exactly who they are. I uh, I don't know if you've you've seen it, but there is this show called The Voice, and I want to tell you uh, that. Um, 
Oh, I don't even know who the I don't even know who the hosts are. But apparently, one tweeted the other's cell phone number. I, I'm a disaster at this. You see, that's <laughs> how you can tell I'm not a parent. I haven't uh, I haven't watched The Voice. But let's uh, let's move along from uh, from the West Coast, the Bay Area, to the East Coast, New York City. It, New, New York City. <laughs> it's uh, Mark Lee. No, oh, you come before Mark Lee, and Mark Lee is actually going to be late. So we're going to put a placeholder in. Where where Mark Lee is, so we're going beyond New York City over to Beantown, uh, where Pete Fenzel drink because you like to drink um, is uh, is waiting. Pete, tell us a story about your mother. Well, first of all, the only place more foolish to get your picante sauce than New York City is to get it from Boston. So I'm glad to step into the niche of poor picante sauce ideas. Uh, so, so my mom. So first of all, the reality show that I last watched with my mom was Rachel versus Guy Celebrity Cookoff, uh, which was del- gloriously fun. I really enjoyed it. My mom loves the Food Network. Uh, she loves the Learning Channel shows about fixing people's houses. Like those are the kind of television shows she generally likes. Like back in the day, I, I have a special note that she used to love to watch Providence, uh, the relatively short-lived doctor show on NBC uh, that sort of came in the, not the post-ER era, because ER went on forever, but the post-ER relevance era, uh, as it were. <laughs> um, but one of the, the pop culture facts about my mom that I'll share, and I, I don't have the, the perfect uh, remembrance of every aspect of this, but there are certain celebrities that my mother feels so kind, kind about and like fond of that she refers to them frequently by first name as if they were close friends, right? Oh, like, did you see Jay last night? Oh, Jay was just so great, right? Like, uh, Jay Leno is one of them. She loves, she loves, uh, Tavis Smiley. Uh, she loves Al and Matt, Al Roker and Matt Lauer. Uh, Bobby Flay, she was, she was fond of him for a while, but then she sort of turned on him a little bit because I think she didn't like his attitude some times and and he kind of like he kind of went the long the wrong way she did love emerald back when he was a thing but gosh were we ever all that young that's ridiculous uh but yeah it's just like these she has a certain uh affinity for the people that she watches on television that she really likes and she shares it with like a great deal of enthusiasm and she also uh has post-it notes that she keeps up in her kitchen of inspirational sayings that she hears uh from various parts and i believe the newest one is by al roker and it is a funny comment that al roker made about himself and his own general sex appeal that she found amusing enough that she made it into a post-it note. So yeah, so that's a little look into my mom's uh, phantasmagoria, my mom's kind of landscape of celebrity and pop culture, and probably explains quite a bit. Does she do, does she do Ellen? My mom does Ellen and talks about Ellen all the time. My mom uh, works during the day. Oh, so. I see. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Your mom, not to say that your mom doesn't, but I don't know if she watches Ellen. I don't know how my mom watches Ellen because she also works during the day. There might be some like TiVo, there might be some DVR setting where Ellen is delivered into primetime uh, for her. I will, uh, I will check back and I will report to you as to my mom's relative Ellen fondness. Uh, I think it's probably okay, but not first name basis. Sure. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and my my mom, when she talks about the celebrities by by first name, she gets very uh, she gets very sort of old world about it, and she gets her sort of midwestern um, Polish father, German mother accent, and so kind of starts talking like this, and like, oh, Jay was doing the jaywalking today, and yeah. <laughs> and, and where, whereas at other times she does not she does not do it. She has a, a California accent because she's been a resident of California for for these thirty five years, you know. Um, 
But uh, uh, we'll get we'll get super Midwestern, you know, we'll get super Missouri or Berea, Ohio or where, wherever she moved around the Midwest a lot as a child. Um, and it's, it's probably more the ladies at church that she talks like uh, than anything else. Oh, Jay was doing the jaywalking today. You know, that's where he talks to people and asks them questions. You know, yeah, yep. you seen that? <laughs> um, I just—I right. was just remembering how one guy who used to make that list, but I haven't heard of in a long time. The first name basis list is Howie Mandel. I have not heard anything about Howie in quite a number of years. Has he been <laughs> so. on? Has he been on TV? Uh, I mean, I'm guessing yes, because everyone else has, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, I'm going to do mine, though. Though, uh, though, um, Mark Lee, we uh, we acknowledge, we pour out some. Uh, uh, we pour out some bullet bourbon in front of our blowtorch um, because those are the things that went, <laughs> if ever you uh, if ever you uh, watch the video recaps or watch the Eurovision videos uh, on our YouTube channel, um, which is on YouTube, uh, you can uh, you can see that Mark uh, carefully arranges the mise en scène in uh, his shots so that on one side of him is like an extra large, like a 1.75 uh, liter uh, container of bullet bourbon. And on the other side is a, is a blowtorch used for searing the products of sous vide cooking. Um, so uh, uh, Mark will, will probably catch you on the podcast later on. Um, but we, uh, we just acknowledge you in this. Um, we acknowledge you uh, now. And uh, I'm going to skip our special guest who will get pride of place at the end of the uh, at the end of the the uh, question of the week and go right on to myself. Um, my mother has a song for every occasion, and God bless her. She has many many virtues and was a wonderful mother. Is a brilliant woman. Uh, has a, uh, multiple advanced degrees, including a doctorate. Um, has done amazing things in her life, is an intrepid world traveler. In her 60s, she flies up to Alaska uh, regularly uh, for the Iditarod and volunteers to tend the dogs at the Iditarod sled dog race uh, in her 60s. Um, she's a wonderful, uh, wonderful woman, and I love her so much. She cannot sing. And, uh, and so I learned all of these songs wrong. I learned them all as chants. Um, so uh, she likes to. Uh, so she likes to sing them. She has songs for for every uh, every occasion. And I was walking uh, along the other day, and I saw that the moon had risen early. It was maybe four or five p.m. and and up in the bright blue sky, uh, there was a you know three quarter moon or something like that. And I thought to myself. Uh, and I, I don't know if this is the right melody, but I'm going, to, um, I'm going to sing it to you now. I thought, Mr. Moon, Mr. Moon, you're out too soon. The sun is still in the sky. Go back to bed and cover up your head and wait for the day to go by. Um, which I think is a scout song that she learned as a Girl Scout. Uh, she has another one for uh, a rainy night that it call, it goes like, I love a rainy night. Um, and we're unclear on the, the lyrics or the melody, but it has a chorus that goes, I love a rainy night. I love a rainy night. I love it when the thunder and the lightning lights up the sky. So uh, my mother will respond to every sort of occasion with, with song. And, and it, was a, uh, it, was a wonderful, it was a wonderful thing, though they were kind of... 
um, the, though they were kind of these chants, these sort of tuneless chants. And so she's passed along to me this this sort of deeply seated internal sense that um, the proper way to respond to any event in the world is by chanting about it. Uh, as I did walking alone and seeing a, seeing a three-quarter moon up in the sky the other day. Um, and uh, and I don't know. I it, it it imbues the world with a sense of the sort of the magical or the mythic. It connects uh, mundane experiences to uh, I I don't know to sort of ancient uh, ancient rhyme and ritual. Um, so I I particularly appreciate it and, and uh, call it out for you now. Special That's guest sweet. time. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> special guest time. Uh, our special guest today, here for a variety uh, of reasons, but mostly because we like to have him, is none other than the uh, the proprietor. Tim, I'm not sure what to call you. The proprietor or the, the adjudicator of the swan song himself, though, though sadly we did not uh, hold up that tradition this year. Uh, our uh, uh, British correspondent, Mr. Timothy Swan, welcome to back to the podcast. Thank you for having me back. Uh- basically at my request. I occasionally have Mondays off. This It's been a couple of years, and when I have Mondays off, I think, I know what I should do. I should be up at half past two my time and go and be on the show. Um, which I guess, if it's, if, it's not, if it's something slightly more than bicoastal, I guess it would be pancoastal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we're going all kind of queer theory on our coasts now. Um, <laughs> the sun never sets on the overthinking of podcasts, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I guess my my pop cultural remembrance about my mother. I was thinking my mother was the only sort of person who did that whole celebrities with first names thing. Uh, but it's not about kind of shows that she watches. It's about anyone to whom we have a very tangential connection uh, will be referred to. The the most uh, notable example being uh, Emma Thompson uh, and her husband Greg Wise uh, uh, will be. Oh, I saw our friend Emma the other day. Uh, which means that she has sat down and watched one of the Kenneth Branagh Shakespeare films. Oh, I saw our friend Emma the other day uh, because she is a friend of a friend. I think it's only two things removed. I think my whatever Kevin Bacon number is four because of being a friend of a friend of Emma Thompson. Um, but um, the the more kind of thing with uh, my mother is the slow but perennial quest of myself and my brothers and my father to get my mother playing video games because she sort of does. We have a Nintendo Wii and she would always join in with kind of those sort of, you know, more family acceptable games. And she has a smartphone now, so she plays some of the games on there. Um, But the latest party game that I have uh, acquired uh, and was introduced by my um, regular podcasting co-host, Ben, is uh, called Starwall. I recommend you get it on Steam. It's not very expensive and it's great if you have a lot of Xbox controllers or whatever and you want to have a party in which everyone is screaming at each other in bewildered merriment. Um, and that is you play as a narwhal in space, in a sort of low-gravity space environment. You only have, like, three buttons, which is forward and left and right, and you have to try and hit with your uh, narwhal tusk, your kind of single protruding horn, the uh, exposed heart of the space narwhals who are competing with you. And it is incredibly difficult to manoeuvre and not just end up kind of flopping around as this unwieldy beast. Uh, So obviously it was the natural choice to try and get my non-gaming mother to play. 
Um, I don't think she appreciated our efforts, uh, my, myself and my father getting her playing it. Uh, I think, yeah, the point is that um, you always try and, I guess, introduce your family members to the things that are slightly outside their comfort zone. I think my mum was in- always introduced me to the slightly more kind of feminine, at least kind of feminine described dramas and stuff, and in vice versa, we try and introduce her to gaming, but with never quite any success in getting her to really get into it. I I, uh, I want to dig into that that um, contention of yours a little bit. That you always try to introduce that that you that one always 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 and that that is uh, that is a very strong qualifier there. Tries to introduce their family members to things outside their their comfort zone. Um, yeah, is is that in fact the case? Well, maybe at the very fringes. I guess it comes to the way gift-giving works, at least for me. I'm terrible at buying heartfelt gifts. I don't understand how to express myself in that way. But what I do understand is uh, pop culture. And so I suppose at every gift-giving opportunity, it's like, here's something that's in my ballpark that I think overlaps in the kind of Venn diagram between us, but it's slightly more towards me. Um which is a very narcissistic way to do gift giving as well. Um, to say, look, I found this thing that you haven't heard of and isn't something you normally consume, and I think you'll like it, but you've just got to kind of come over here a little bit. So I have to tell a story about, about gift giving and going outside their t- comfort zone. My, my father, when he was a college student or a graduate student or something like that, and was in the, in the throes of you know, the, the pretension that, that I suppose we all go through, um, decided that it would be a, a, a wise thing to um, uh, come home at Christmas one year uh, with a gift. For, and his Christmas gift for his mother, wa- who was, by the way, my grandmother, uh, an entertainer. She was an actress. Um, uh, the complete works of Thomas Aquinas, or at least per- perhaps the selected works of Thomas Aquinas, because the complete works, I think, would be, would, you know, fill several tractor trailers or something. Um, and uh, to give it to her with all kinds of pomp and ceremony and say, you know, here, here uh, are some of the major writings of Thomas Aquinas. I think you'll really appreciate these. Um, and the, uh, uh, you know, and so uh, once he to- once he told me this, he guaranteed that that I bought him nothing but books of Thomas Aquinas for for several years while while I was in college or something like that. But there there is there is a uh, there is a line I think is my point in 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 that sort of in that sort of gift giving. I think the complete works of Thomas Aquinas is a little rough. I mean, every time I go to one of his shows and he starts playing his new stuff, I'm like, go back to the classics. Scholasticism. <laughs> At time you jammed with the Allman brothers. But, <laughs> I still very vividly remember when my mother attempted to play Mario, uh, Super Mario Brothers for the Nintendo Entertainment System and ran headlong into the first Goomba. And just sort of a general sense of like, not so much shock or it's like I didn't quite know what bewilderment was at the time, so I didn't know how to react to it. But in retrospect, that was the impulse that I felt. It was just bewilderment that this could be the way in which someone might interact with the machine that was in front of me. <laughs> uh, and, and as such, I'd never pressured my mom to play video games pretty much. I hadn't pressured her the first time, and I certainly didn't pressure her on subsequent times. Although she did, she and my father did both comfort me on a numerous occasions due to video game inspired nightmares, which were a common occurrence throughout my childhood. So in that way, they were playing the games uh in the sen- in a greater sense i suppose yeah, I, the, well yeah, had, yeah they were playing the games but you were your psyche was the controller 
Yeah, in the sense that like Mario Mario Brothers isn't about turtles but about existential dread, then they were definitely playing Mario. So uh, no, Ben, go ahead. Sorry, I, saying, I, I had that. I had two brothers, and we were in constant warfare already over the the, the scarce resource of the video game controller. Uh, and so the last thing we needed was more people in the house competing for the screen time. <laughs> so we, we probably would have actively discouraged my parents from from getting into video games. But I, I'm not sure we really needed to, to work that hard to get that done. Yeah, I, I played with my dad a lot, but Father's Day is not for a couple months right. or a month, a month, right? A month. Oh, I, I did want to note that it's not Mother's Day outside of the U.S., is it? It's just the U.S. or is it the U.S. and Canada? Like, we've done Mother's Day. We did that in spring. Like, it's all a daffodils, a daffodils sort of holiday for us. <laughs> like, it's all... I was trying daffodils. to think of the adjectival form, and I could not. <laughs> is, it not is it not still spring? Oh, well, May. Transitional. It's still wet, but that's not really a kind of a, a decider around these parts. Huh. I think the adjectival form of daffodil is daffodilicious. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the, so may uh, may I ask you a question, Tim? Uh, you, you, you may. As our expert on, as our resident correspondent and expert on Britishness, um, I have recently uh, also become an expert on Britishness because I read a BuzzFeed or uh, similar thing uh, called "30 Things Only British People Will Understand." And I read all thirty of them, and so now I understand the things that only British people will understand. Um, so did the, did, the, did the BuzzFeed list disqualify its own existence? Was there some sort of wormhole that opened up? Um, and it is uh, it, it dovetails um, uh, it dovetails interestingly uh, with something I learned uh, the most recent time when I was in England, uh, and and that was the time that you and I uh, met IRL, um, where where someone I met explained to me that. Uh, it is very rude uh, in in Britain to refer to someone in the third person as he if if he is standing right there or she if she is standing right there right that that you use a person's name and that this is the the polite respectful way to refer to a person uh, it, is that not correct? Um, I know my mother told me off for doing it. It would often be who's she the cat's mother. That huh. would be the usual kind of the pr- proverbial proverbial way of uh, being told, you know, well, who are you referring to? Like, right. uh, a third person is someone who must be absent. So if you're saying she, then who's she? The cat's mother? Right. Um, and, and, then, so, and then the person who, ta- who taught this to me uh, traveled a lot in the States and wa- uh, had to get used to being referred to as he while he was in the room, and, though he confessed that his uh, impulse... Um, uh, his name was Ian, so I'll say Ian's impulse was uh, to to sort of call out, you know, I have a name, uh, to to you know protest protest this rudeness. So the thing on this list, this uh, BuzzFeed or some similar site list of thirty things that only British people would un- would, would understand, experiences only British people would understand, um, was that uh, if you don't catch someone's name the first time, uh, uh, yes. You must pray never to meet them again, because uh, you can't you can't ask a second time, and you can't refer to them in the third uh, in the third person. And so, um, so you must you must uh, hope that your paths never cross uh, in this life. Um, I suppose it's more a story than a question, but uh, I, I, let's make it into a question: Is that, sir, in fact, the case? 
I haven't noticed it in 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 recent uh, times. I haven't been kind of told off for it, but maybe it's now just so natural to me that I just don't get it wrong. <laughs> um, but certainly, I remember being told when I was a child not not to do it. So it must be part of the culture somewhere. But I just think I don't think I was kind of cognizant of it as an actual. We have a lot of these rules, rules that are definitely rules and definitely can't be broken, of which there is no flexibility, of which none of us are actually consciously aware. That you know that that is British culture at its heart. Uh huh. And that, but but uh, you know, breaking any any one of them um, is uh, would be terrible, right? What would happen if somebody were to go rogue in Britain? <laughs> All right. Okay, what if they okay. just didn't have time? <laughs> well, they, Hold they, on. They certainly put the milk in uh, after the tea. <laughs> Oh, is that is that true? Does that actually damage the china? What's the re- what's the reasoning for the milk tea thing? <laughs> it's it's a class thing. Uh, so, so, spoiler warning: that is the answer to every of those questions. But um, for some reason, and I don't know why, uh, upper class people put in the milk first, and lower class people put in the milk afterwards. Um, and I don't know why it is, but once those are these established expectations, obviously, if you're having proper, you know. Uh, afternoon tea with a teapot and a strainer and whatever you've got to get the milk in there first because otherwise you're declassing what is a kind of high class thing that you're supposedly doing uh-huh. do lower class people use tea bags in britain or is it still everyone, everyone uses tea bags now but the uh-huh. expectations are still there even if well no middle class people use leaf tea but i imagine upper class people don't it's one of those ones where actually the upper class and the lower class are closer together in a lot of behaviors and the middle class is always trying to put in the kind of the barrier. Um, but so, yeah, I'm pretty sure everyone uses tea bags now. But, um, you know, in the Victorian times in which all of our social customs were invented and have barely changed. No, Britain has modernized, but there is certain things that just kind of stick. And so now you basically just have to ask people because different people have different preferences. Um, oh, do you have the milk in first? <laughs> you see, we, we right, yeah. You, you. Uh, it's become a minefield, right? Like one of the one of the uh, benefits of of having you know rigid social mores is that you know what to do, right? Yeah, and that you're not uh, you're not surprised by by anything. But um, get we'll, we'll get to going rogue in in just one second. Uh, before we go, I want to uh, call out a couple things that are happening on Overthinking It uh, this week. We are continuing our recaps of Game of Thrones. Uh, and uh, a show near and dear to Pete's heart, and and now to Tim's, I think, um, 24. So uh, though we don't have time for recaps, uh, we we have a 24 recap that you can download. And it is the first recap in television recapping history that unfolds in real time. Uh, So Beep! uh, Beep! Beep! <laughs> Unfortunately, it's audio only, so the silent clock effect will be somewhat lost if any of us are to be killed during the course of the recap. <laughs> Though, if you uh, if if you listen the first time, you'll notice that the production was very good, and it included sound effects uh, to um, you know to really locate the recap in the uh, in the twenty four universe. I'm not I'm not even watching it, Pete, and I enjoyed. Uh, the recap. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the next one and Game of Thrones. You can uh, subscribe to those um, 
And in any of the show notes for those on Overthinking It, you'll find a link to both the iTunes version, if that's how you get podcasts, or to an RSS feed if you have a different podcatcher. And we would love it if you subscribed uh, to the uh, TV recaps feed. We're going to add more shows. And if you have suggestions of shows, we would be uh, quite happy to uh, hear about them and to start watching them and recapping them. So uh, that's going on in Overthinking It this week. We also have some some good articles queued up and uh, uh, one about uh, realism in Game of Thrones that I'm particularly excited about um, and, uh, and more stuff going on in Overthinking It. So uh, make sure to make it part of your daily daily media diet at overthinkingit.com. Um, so, uh, Tim, you had an assignment when you, when you started this podcast, uh, or, or when, when uh, we asked you to come on. Um, we asked you to watch the first two episodes of 24 Live Another Day uh, and, uh, and to comment critically upon them. So I, I feel like I should take a step back here and hand it over to Pete, who was our, uh, uh who is the world's foremost expert on, um, Bowerian studies, uh, <laughs> which is to be fair, not the study of Jack Bauer, but the study of the study of Jack Bauer. <laughs> right. I, I am the first derivative of a scholar <laughs> as it were, right. which is, I think that's probably an as accurate a description of podcasting as you can ever find. Um, but, but yeah, so you want to say, so 24 live another day takes place in the United Kingdom. Uh, it takes place in London for the most part so far. We have not ventured out to Cardiff or to the other parts of the, the Isle of Man or other Crown Dominions yet. We've stayed entirely within London. Uh, but of I, course. I, I would watch that show 24 on Sark. <laughs> on Sark, yes. No cars allowed. Helicopters are banned. Uh, you've just got to run around or, if you're lucky, get a tandem cycle. Oh, yeah. The 24 Jersey style would be really misunderstood if it took place in yep. the Channel Island. That would definitely be true. Why are these uh, people not tan? <laughs> Why are they not tan? Yes, that, that would be the, that's the chief complaint about most episodes of 24. Everyone's very tasty <laughs> despite living in Los Angeles. So, so the main thing, we, I mean, we know we have the 24 recap where we've gone through a lot of the specifics of the episodes and about its place in 24 Legacy. And I really encourage you to go check out the recap. Uh, Ryan Sheely and I on the first episode go through a lot of that detail. What I was particularly interested from Tim, you know, our our uh, our primary, our go-to guy uh, in in Great Britain, uh, Britannia, what rules the airwaves or pod waves or what have you? Oh, that's, that's good. <laughs> Thanks, man. You know, I very much think of myself as the Lady Penelope to this podcast. Oh, uh, the, the one that's like, and when you're circumspect and you're weaving at your loom and you have to unravel your podcastrial shroud every time that a, a suitor decides. Uh, anyway, to, oh to, no, to, no, no. I mean, I, I you guys had Thunderbirds, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we begin to see the difference in perspective. Uh, but anyway, just I want to know about the sense of place. Like, what does it mean? Because I, I remember I saw, like, Law and Order uh, Britain style or whatever it was called. <laughs> yeah. Where everybody uh, – Special like, scrumping unit, you guys. Come on. <laughs> hey, it's Mark. Mark's here. I'm here, yes. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Couldn't resist well, any longer. <laughs> no, indeed, indeed. So, yeah, so I remember, and I remember the barristers wearing their wigs. And, and I remember most of the cast of Doctor Who's of various sorts making yeah, appearances yeah. And, and whatnot. So I understood how the sense of place kind of affected that property. But I was wondering from your perspective how the sense of place of London in 24, which is a very American show uh, in terms of its moral problems and also its, uh, its uh, 
attitudes I, I find, you know, about things like things like uh, government authority, individualism, right? Like the role of of people and in institutions, the role of hitting people and flipping over tables and grabbing on the lapels of jackets are all very non-English in twenty four. At least I understand it historically. Unless you guys are much more comfortable speaking very loudly from very close to someone's face, unless you're much more comfortable with that than I thought. But I was wondering what you all thought about placing twenty four in Britain and how it 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 fit with your perspective uh, on what the country, uh, how the country deals with law enforcement or how it deals with law enforcement pop culture more specifically. I, I really like, I watched both episodes and I think that was my kind of brief, the British look at this. And I really thought there's literally no reason for this to be in London. There's nothing <laughs> in this, there is nothing in this show that couldn't have been set in a like other city in the US or some other city in the world. Apart from having Stephen Fry as the prime minister, um, which I've just taken as, well, Stephen Fry could probably do that now. He's got about enough cachet to just kind of go for that uh, if he wanted. Uh, you know, you do enough panel shows, eventually the British are going to want you to be your, their prime minister. That's essentially how. I don't know whether you get lots of these, you know, Facebook fan pages, so-and-so for president. But in Britain, it's usually slightly outspoken TV personalities who get that kind of treatment as, oh, we wish this person would be. The Prime Minister. Oh, like it's, it's like draft. Uh, oh gosh, I don't even remember the name of any good British like talk show hosts or whatnot. I guess because Craig Ferguson's Australian or something. He's not. He's not British, right? I don't Craig know. Ferguson is Scottish. Scottish. That's right. That's right. So he would okay. be. He might be Prime Minister of a new autonomous Scotland now that he's leaving. But anyway, uh, <laughs> it is autonomous. Anyway, continue, continue, continue. Sorry, you're the one who knows about um, Britain. So well, no. I, I guess I was going to say. I suppose yeah. Jonathan Jonathan Ross is the big talk show host in the UK. Who um, the but very different kind of discourse. He is kind of the whole funny banter with his guests and whatever. But he's really geeky and into comics. And his wife is oh, her name escapes me, Jane. But she is a big screenwriter for movies like Kickass and um, X Men First Class and stuff. Um, so yeah, that sort of thing. Or the kind of more comic types like Stephen Fry. Um, right, right, right. And I mean, he's you know he is Cambridge educated and went to a posh public school, so you know he's pretty much qualified uh, by the current standards of government uh, ministers. But that kind of slight oh right okay we've they've some of our troops have died in Afghanistan. It's turned might turn into an international incident. He's got to speak before the baying parliament. Um, this was the bit where it kind of most approached the British culture. And I was like, oh, they'll whip you apart. I don't know if any of you guys have seen the level of discourse uh, in the British Parliament. Um, oh, yeah. I used to watch Prime Minister's Questions like every week. Back when I was in high school, though, back, back in the day. Uh, wow. Back when, yeah, 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 definitely. It was, it was very encouraged for us to watch it by, our high school, by my high school history teacher, just because it was such an interesting, an interesting dialogue. We, it was shown on, it's shown on C-SPAN, which is the okay. government-owned network uh, that, broadcast, that records and broadcasts uh, congressional hearings and, and congressional sessions and other yeah. sort of stuff. Yep. Um, okay, that's interesting. I didn't Mr. Know Swan, Swan Mr. Swan, say order, order. Would Mr. Swan say <laughs> the government of the podcast is with the jello pudding? It's, I can't, I, oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> point of personal right. privilege. Yeah. <laughs> Will the right honorable gentleman please shut up? Have you seen the great uh, old Mike Myers? It's not even that old. It's like latter day Mike Myers coming back to host Saturday Night Live long after he left Saturday Night Live. He came back on uh, playing John Major. Uh, hosting uh, with Prime Minister's Questions. Okay. Did Was you ever see that sketch? Major 
was actually the prime minister because if not it's a really obscure choice yeah no 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 it was when john major was it was okay, a dark no, I have for both the british government and for saturday night live so don't worry about that <laughs> yes 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 but uh but yeah will ferrell would just stand up and go we the oasis is the greatest band of all time wouldn't the prime <laughs> and he just repeated it over and over again comedy gold people comedy gold but yes, um, this so, yeah. idea that he's going to go into this place where, okay, most of them are kind of trained barristers, they're very kind of legally minded, but they're childish. It's so, such a petty thing. They have their silly jokes at Prime Minister's questions that are kind of subpar for a comedy standard, but because it's Parliament. And then you have a hundred people behind you going, oh, yes, or boo, um, and so forth, just whatever you say. Um, and kind of this kind of murmuring and muttering. It's so impolite and kind of that's the level it's not you know the president isn't going to be torn apart they are going to listen with some kind of respect and then they're going to ask him really finickety questions and then if it supports a party point they're going to kind of almost moo as a herd on each side of the house um so i don't think the president has as much to be uh worried about uh but i don't know his background so one of the reasons i haven't listened to the uh the recap because i didn't want to come into this with any actual like information or understanding apart from what i'd seen in the first two episodes so, oh, so i can you haven't, ask seen, all any, of the you haven't seen any other 24 like you haven't seen any I other have never seen any 24 and so, i thought <laughs> wow exactly i thought that this one you know okay it's this new series it has the new title you're going to jump in he's going to be in london okay you kind of know oh right he's the kind of action hero he uses you know a certain level of brutality to get stuff done but actually i thought the morality i don't know how i would describe it it kind of goes beyond kantian of watching it is i don't i don't know um you know what moral standard he has but i know if he's doing it it must be right the show yes. is quite strongly to tell us that the, the, the morality of the 24 world is what Jack does is right. And anyone who's against him must be a bad guy. Um, or stupid. Don't forget stupid. Or misled. Or like oh, well, yes, I suppose mis- <laughs> misguided the CIA and so yeah. forth. Um, oh, man. So, Tim, you really could have used it previously on 24. Which you did not get at all. No, no, no. Because then I'm like, okay, has Jack been a traitor since the end of the last season? Or, you know, these sort of things. Has he really gone bad at the start? I thought that was that was quite exciting because there was tension for me of, I knew Jack was supposed to be a hero and now he's working against the CIA to break in and maybe assassinate the president and so forth. Maybe he has gone bad and the mystery of this series is going to be how anyone could make Jack bad. But it turns out, no, it's just all stuff from the end of season eight, probably. Tim, can I ask you a question? Like, are you familiar with sort of uh, 24 and Jack Bauer's uh, positioning within the American political discourse over the last uh, decade or so about the whole torture debate and things like that? Or should we fill you in on that? I, I, I was describing having watched 24, uh, two episodes to someone who had never watched it. And I said, it's the right wing version of Homeland. Um, because that's how Homeland was sold over here. I don't know if it's how it was sold over in the States was Homeland is the left wing 24. Um, huh. Oh, wow. No, no, no. I would say definitely not. <laughs> I mean, I, mean, I don't know about you guys. Never... As of the first series, uh, mm. because who watched past the middle of series two of Homeland? But um, the, um, yeah, that it's about this kind of, yeah, you will use torture to get the results. It's the whole, you know, getting results argument of if there is a nuke in LA or whatever, or if the president is a secret terrorist, then a little bit of grabbing people by the lapels and headbutting them 
is going to sort everything out. Well, there's, yeah, I mean, there's an interesting thing, right? There's an interesting uh, twist on on what you call the Kantian or beyond Kantian, uber Kantian ethics of of twenty four, which is that well, like it's Nietzschean, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, right, like it's not, um, uh, you know, the the well, one of the formulations of the the categorical imperative was something like act act in such a way where you can simultaneously will that your that the maximum by which you act be uh, be universal or something something tantamount to that right um and and it's uh the the jack bauer corollary of that is is act jack bauer should act in such a way that jack bauer should act and no one else should act in that way (laughs) but aren't you glad there's a jack bauer who can act uh act in that way in other words it's it's uh let's call it nicholsonian ethics because it 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 boils down to you want me on that wall you need me on that wall you know? Well, I mean, it does relate back to the kind of the more the Ian Fleming James Bond and the modern James Bond. You know, is that very much the British same thing? He, you know, he will do the the torturing of his uh, opponents and the killing and whatever. Um, and the thing that links it is, uh, to me, is uh, the kind of psychopathy uh, that uh, J- Jack is described as a traitor and a psychopath. Um and psychopaths are kind of my field now. Um, I recently had the exciting opportunity to do uh, a psychopath test uh, at work on one of our patients because I work in a secure hospital. You um, see a turtle turned over in the middle of the road. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, when, when I was at uh, university, actually, there is an informal psychopath test that does work more like the whole Blade Runner thing of... Um, a woman meets a lovely man at her, her mother's funeral um, and she really gets on with him but doesn't get his number. Um, uh, a week later, she kills her sister. Why does she do this? And anyone who can answer that instantly and with a certain answer is thought to be likely to be a psychopath. It's to find out where the nuke is, right? That's why people do these things. <laughs> What is that answer, Tim? Uh, so uh, most people say if they are non-psychopathic, they, after a lot of hesitation, should say because her sister was flirting with the man as well and she was jealous. This really emotive reason. Whereas a more psychopathic individual uh, is supposed to very quickly come to the conclusion. Um, and I must confess this was what my answer was instantly was, so there'll be another funeral. Huh. Oh, I thought uh, it was like vengeance thing because the other woman, she realized the other woman killed her mother. And it's like, oh, <laughs> which is terrible, especially on Mother's Day. That's a terrible thing to do and not something people yeah, should. But I like, I like the idea that some you know, CIA people have sat around and like, can we diagnose Jack Bauer as a psychopath? Can we properly get this diagnostic label on him for our own purposes? Because um, I don't think he is. He doesn't seem to act like a psychopath. He's not, he's not even a little bit of a psychopath because he's tremendously emotional. Just tremendously emotional about so much of what he does. And just and like, yeah. Well, that emotion the, isn't just like reactive anger because some, you know, psychopaths do experience emotion, but it's that kind of reactive, shallow anger is the kind of main characteristic emotion. And my, my sense of 24 is that the torture is always like ruthlessly utilitarian. Mm. Like just com- the show is premised on a ticking clock. And, that, and that's why the torture has to happen now. 
Yeah. Often the torture is because they don't have time for more conventional interrogation that would require them to transfer somebody to another facility. So it's like, okay, we got to do this now. They say that. That's like dialogue from the show, right? We don't have time for more conventional interrogation that would require us to transfer someone to another facility. Yeah, so except except all of that is work alone would take us into season four. <laughs> <laughs> it would take yeah forty eight hours right of, of just getting forms signed. Uh, that's that that was the show, the television show E Ring, starring Benjamin Bratt and uh, and uh, the late great Dennis Hopper. That that featured the signatures montage inside the Pentagon as they they went around getting buy in for whatever uh, operation they were working <laughs> on at the time. So yeah, I guess what are the top moments of Jack Bauer not being a psychopath? Not necessarily not doing ill-advised or violent things, but not doing things that would be psychopathic in nature. I mean, one of the things that you don't know because you haven't watched past episodes of the show, but they've they've hinted at, is that Jack was involved very seriously at one point with the daughter of the President of the United States in the current episode of 24, who at the time was his boss and the Secretary of Defense. Uh, and so part of why he's going to so much trouble to to prevent an assassination attempt on the president is that he's still on some level in love with the president's daughter and is trying to kind of like uh, either sort of make something up to her or like, you know, try to purify himself. He's also responsible for her old ex-husband's death, uh, although they weren't really divorced. They were more separated when he was gunned down. Um, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of emotional drama. There's the time where Jack Bauer tried to save the woman he had the affair with in the Mexican drug cartel headquarters. Like, there was the wife of the Mexican drug lord that when Jack Bauer was undercover with the drug lord, he was having an affair with. And then he, like, he left, and then he came back. And that was the day when he had a heroin addiction in the morning, but by, like, lunch she was over it uh and he uh he tried to get her back but she was shot while she was in a in a the flatbed of a pickup truck and, and he got very mad and upset and had kind of a rough day i think that was also the one where it ended with just jack bauer in a parking lot crying which is like pretty amazing that that was the end of a yeah. season of 24 was they just like got in the car and was just like on oh, completely overwhelmed by everything that had happened to him over the course of the previous day um I mean, what, Ben, you were about to jump in, I think, with some more non-psychopathic, dangerous, violent Jack Bauer stuff. Oh, no, I've, I've only seen, like, one season, so my oh, knowledge okay. of Jack Bauer is, uh, is fairly minimal. Yeah. Well, I mean, Jack, that, yeah. go ahead. I guess psychopathy can be considered this kind of special case of an antisocial personality disorder, and clearly what Jack is wrestling with is attachment issues, which can be one of the kind of lenses through which we see kind of key problems with personality disorder. He, you know, the whole thing of you're my friend, I don't have any friends, that kind of thing that we see. The way he's relating to people is primarily to Chloe in these two episodes so far, that he's trying to push her away and find it kind of impossible to do so. But that whole struggle is the sort of kind of thing that a psychopath just wouldn't have. Mm. Like, so, so, so let me ask you another question about psychopathy. So attachment in psychopathy versus attachment in PTSD. So if it does it help you understand Jack Bauer at all that in the first season, Jack Bauer's wife was killed by one of his co-workers who was secretly working with a Bosnian terrorist. Uh, and it's such as very difficult to love in the first season of 24. <laughs> Serbian I love terrorist. the fact it was so old that the idea of Bosnian terrorists was still vaguely like a thing. <laughs> Is that not a thing in Britain anymore? Like, uh, um, it's like that or and also like plaid shirts, are they over also? Um, <laughs> We still have Bosnian terrorists are over. I'm, you know, I'm sure they'll be on Portlandia. 
<laughs> oh yeah, that's true. Good point. Good point. Things only uh, '90s kids would understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you could have a really dark version of that, and it's like if you get really scared anytime you hear a Serbian name, <laughs> you might be a kid of the '90s. So if you wanted to make it matter, so first of all, if you if you if you'd seen any of the rest of '24, you would realize that their failure to provide any reason for why this should be happening in London means that the show is is true to form uh, and is doing exactly what it generally. <laughs> does with regards to sense of place what would you do to make 24 a more british show to, to or also to change 24 not really knowing about its legacy at all but like if you were to make this show it'd make it more relevant that it's taking place in the united kingdom or specifically in london or specifically in england or specifically in like i don't know is that is that in sussex or essex or can i, I can know. i can i jump in oh. pete and okay, answer yes. before our guest answers the question because I, yes. I i think i know what he's going to say uh, oh, oh, okay. And so well, well, if you know what t- Tom Tim's going to say, uh, uh, or at least I know he what I'm going to say. What no, he she... is going to say. <laughs> uh, what uh, Tim three... is going to say. <laughs> Would the gentleman from Tim agree? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Point of personal privilege, Mister. Uh, uh, three words, Pete. Dame Maggie Smith. (laughs) Carson, I don't know what's going on where a man can torture another man in peace these days. Well, I do dare say we don't have time. We we never have time for anything now, do we? I I dare say. Indeed, indeed. Right. I also wanted, I just really want to know what's going to happen at like 4 o'clock p.m. Right. <laughs> <laughs> is it going to be 4 o'clock or is they going to wait for high tea at 5 o'clock? Which, which, when, when is Jack Bauer going to have tea? That, if I that doesn't think, happen. I think Jack Bauer is more of an afternoon tea than a high tea person. Mm. Can you explain the difference to those of us who aren't familiar with Jack Bauer or tea, but mostly tea? <laughs> <laughs> Again, I love the fact, admittedly, like, I think when I come on the show, I really reinforce this idea that Britain is still in the Downton Abbey era when it's substantially not. Um, but uh, high tea would be. Um, if you were not having a cooked dinner that evening, so you'd had, you know, a cooked luncheon, I suppose, um, and um, you would be then expecting to have maybe a supper later, um, but you're going to have um, a certain more kind of sandwiches, cold meats, those sort of things, uh, at high tea. Whereas an afternoon tea is going to be holding you until you have dinner, but you're unlikely to have supper afterwards. Um, Or again, supper is a similarly kind of medium-sized meal may yeah may may i ask i mean i know that that supper is later than dinner is it is it is it generally thought that supper is cold like you have a cold supper as opposed to a cooked supper i think supper is going to be less fussy so if it wasn't cold it would again not be kind of a whole like you know meal with courses Mm -hmm. um and so i know and again it's another one of those things the more upper class person would refer to their evening meal as oh would you come over for supper uh and that could be kind of any time from i guess like six o'clock onwards but if it's not a whole sit down affair with multiple courses they would probably call it supper rather than dinner right um 
so it's more about the complexity of the meal, I think. Um, in my like lower middle class background, of which I've never experienced this, but have learned from reading Enid Blyton and those sort of things. Um, but to answer the original question that Pete asked, because I did actually make some notes on this as I was going through, I was desperately thinking, right, how would I rewrite this? Um, one of the first things I wrote was about the five eyes. Um, uh, the five eyes is like this Anglosphere uh, intelligence cooperation between the UK, the US. Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, um, which is also a big deal in New Zealand because New Zealand does not have the political or economic punching power that the rest of those countries have, but they're included because they speak English. Um, And so I think the whole thing would be framed in the context of that international cooperation, the fact that basically the Five Eyes cooperated on all the NSA stuff and thus, like, once again, Britain's cachet in Europe and the rest of the world has gone down because of its association with the USA. Um, And uh, did any of you watch the uh, TV show that in the UK was called Spooks, but for some uh, racism reason, um, uh, it's it's called uh, MI5 in the US. My wife has seen a fairly decent amount of it. Uh, I just know that, like, 24 involves a lot of uh, yelling, running around, and terrorists, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the the overlap is, I think it was kind of inspired by 24, and it does raise questions about torture, but those are always questions. The difference is that there is not one unstoppable hero. Like, the heroes pretty much all die um, in the line of duty. Um, So it has that you know not exactly on the game of thrones level but more so the most uh, shows is um the idea that any of the heroes can die horribly in fighting these terrorists but it's always got this there will always be a cia director as a character and you know a cia team who's working in london who to a greater or lesser extent are going to be either villainous or competing or supporting against a larger goal that the idea of britain always has to see itself as we're the ones who are cooperating with someone you know we are part of the EU, we're part of the special relationship, we're part of the UN Security Council. I don't think we ever see ourselves acting alone, even in our spy dramas. Um, it's very much like that uh, scene in the first season of Scrubs, of seeing yourself as Robin or even Albert in your Batman fantasy. Uh, the, the UK does that in its spy shows. Um, whereas, you know, the involvement of Britain in 24 Live Another Day is like, well, the Prime Minister is in a couple of scenes, and the President is going to have to speak to Parliament, and there's one corrupt Metropolitan Police Officer. Um, have to say, it's beautiful to see a Metropolitan Police Officer who is corrupt by being on the payroll of the CIA. That is a refreshing change of place from, you know, covering up uh, shootings of innocent civilians, and um, <laughs> institutionalised wow. racism, and more generalised police corruption. Um, so again, that kind of level of I know you can't get into all of these kind of discourses about is the Met corrupt and what are intelligence services, cooperation and competition like. But I did want to see a bit more of like I wanted to see an MI5 agent. You know, that would be a bit relevant, you'd think. The day is young. The day is young. Okay. Yes. (laughs) But I I mean, I think you have some similarities. I think you sort of understand the type of the type of Jack Bauer in his sort of more self-destructive aspects, because I have seen, you know, Prime Suspect and Luther and the Fall. Right. Yeah. And and so I'm given to understand that, uh, you know, detective inspectors or, or, uh, you know, I'm not clear on on the ranks exactly are are, you know, brooding and and self 
self-destructive and uh, antisocial, you know, in, in, in ways that make them brilliant, but also tragically misunderstood by their peers. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you aren't allowed to reach the rank of DI or higher unless you first get divorced or get a drinking problem. Right. Um, that's you know, that's the, Pre- that's preferably the both. <laughs> preferably both. And then you have to have one obscure, like, pseudo-intellectual interest, um, you know, whether it's Morse and his cryptic crosswords or uh, Inspector Rebus and his kind of old vinyl records. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the whole, yeah, the idea of the British detective in fiction uh, is... Yeah, uh, a sense of morality in the face of total despair, uh, divorce, drinking, and some kind of intellectual pursuit. Uh, I mean, Luther is, I think, quite a good parallel, really, in that level of brutality towards the individuals, but always in the service of what he perceives as the greater good, but against both the organization and against the kind of law of the land. The, the you know, an interesting, another interesting poll I was thinking of was, is, um, Garrick from Deep Space Nine. Uh, I just saw the episode uh, called In the Pale Moonlight. And, you know, I don't know, no spoilers, but it involves Garrick and his his background and sort of doing unsavory spy things uh, uh, in order to um, in order to, you know, further the interest of the Federation in the Dominion War. And uh, and and the the interesting thing by about Garrick is that he seems so in, in a way he seems so British in or like uh, the American conception of British as being very proper uh, and sort of very um, very unconcerned right like he in every conversation he seems to have all the time in the world to you know uh, uh, trade witty repartee and and you know turn a phrase uh, with you know a wildian bon mot uh, Right, and uh, he doesn't seem to be uh, either tortured. Um, he doesn't seem to be either tortured or particularly hurried. Uh, which is, um, you know, Jack, Jack Bauer is, you know, uh, both both tor- the, the the tortured becomes the torturer, and uh, and is is extremely hurried. Right, like that's that's the the thing the sh- whole show is is predicated on. Um, yeah. Uh, any any other any other uh, uh, changes you'd like to make to uh, to twenty four to make it more British or any more uh, other British uh, observations well, that you have about it? I suppose uh, we don't really know what the uh, apparent villain, Caitlin Stark, is. Um, you know what her position is, uh, what she is. She looks like she's in an Oxford College tutorial room. Um, that's what that kind of looks like straight. Either, you know, a little bit of a stately home or a little bit of an Oxford college. Um, so whether it turns out she is a disaffected uh, professor at Oxford or Cambridge um, who has got something against drones. Oh, well, the drones thing. Like, the UK has drones. It uses them to attack targets. Like, our program is not dissimilar. It's just a smaller scale than the US. So I like this idea that all of these British protesters are taking this moral high ground. Because most British people don't really know that, it seems. Um, of like, oh yeah, the Americans and their drones. It's like, yeah, yeah, the RAF do that too. We call them reapers instead of predators, but they're basically the same thing. That's a that's a, a different. I mean, a reaper versus a predator is is sort of a different use of metaphor, right? Like, I don't know why 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 reap instead of you know hunt, right? Just, just for just for well, actually, and to, to oh. keep my, my status as our military as our military representative, reapers and predators are. Both U.S. or at least Boeing airframes. I'm not sure they're Boeing, but they're both U.S. made air 
aircraft, but they're just different. The Reaper is like substantially larger than the Predator. Does the so Reaper have, have like a big we, blade we that it swings? Too. It has like a big handle and it's just like swoop, <laughs> swoop. <laughs> little like. Well, the the Predator has the infrared vision. I can't, I can't do a predator. I can't do a predator impression. I'm not very good at it. Do a sheep instead. Indeed, indeed. Oh, but go man. on. But but you are. I mean, you know the the okay. So the the all the hand wringing about drones. Um, but you are. I mean, how, how, what is the the sense like? Aren't you the most surveilled first world people in the world? Yeah, I mean, I think it's up there between kind of us and Germany, but basically, yes. And so the whole fact that then GCHQ, which is our like equivalent of the NSA, you know, the signals intelligence uh, people, um, was funneling a fair amount of that through to the NSA was, I think, perhaps more the kind of the shocking, you know, amongst the many shocking revelations and the whole kind of snowden thing was very much a uk us thing of you know a us whistleblower speaking to a you know important uk newspaper um because it was very much the well what's the british angle the british angle is actually we've been feeding all of this intelligence that we have through to um the us and i think the british people probably had gotten used to being spied on by their own people but 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 a colonial commoner you know that kind of attitude of (laughs) but them as well um, <laughs> that's like that's like being the uh, the Lucius Fox in your Batman fantasy, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, I, um, if I want to make a joke about Barack Obama being Kenyan, but I just can't figure it out in terms of being a colonial commoner. But well, uh, I mean, there I think there is still that kind of vague attitude of again um, that the US is the slightly more brash, that it is more powerful, but it's not more classy. And that whole kind of, you know, it doesn't know when to have high tea, even amongst kind of, you know, people not of class and whatever, oh, or not, not of class, because no one's not of class, but not of an upper class. <laughs> we don't have supper, but we do have fourth meal. Although I think the Taco Bell brand department might have canceled it in favor of tacos for breakfast. I was going to say, what about second breakfast? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think think they've heard of second breakfast. (laughs) Um, So uh, let's let's uh, go move from Britain to the the British Isles to the European continent. Which is tough because the English Channel is ruled by the British Navy, the English Navy, the UK-ish Navy. The, 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 the royal name. navy. The royal navy. That's the word. <laughs> royal. Got it. Because so whichever we call our country when Scotland leaves, it's still going to have a queen. Do, do British people react negatively to Lordy because she's anti-monarchialist? Oh, is she? I didn't know that. To Lord, uh, to, do you mean Lordy in the context of Eurovision say, is something very <laughs> different from, from Lord, the New Zealand teenager who oh, is Lord, a, yes. a I singer. totally passed that as the Finnish band. <laughs> right. <laughs> they're, a, they're a Finnish, uh, like, death rock band, right? A very popular and Eurovision winning. Yeah. And, well, let's um, just leave that question behind and move forward to the Eurovision part. So, uh, so uh, Conchita Verst, uh, the Austrian singer who uh, performs in drag, uh, has won Eurovision with the song Rise Like the Phoenix. And uh, we have the American expert on that song, uh, Mark Lee, on the podcast tonight. Mark, you... Um, recorded our Eurovision uh, review of Rise Like Rise Like the Phoenix. So what do you think what do you think now that it's taken the whole thing? Did you have any idea that this would in fact that you were backing the winning horse? 
I did, in fact, and uh, here's why. Because in 2013, last year, I reviewed favorably, quite favorably, uh, last year's winner of the competition, right? Um, uh, only teardrops from, uh, I'm forgetting the country already, but anyway, only teardrops. Denmark. They won Denmark. It was yes. in Copenhagen. <laughs> exactly. There you go. Um, uh, and, and I felt like, you know, I basically the Nate Silver of Eurovision. Right. Like I figure this shit out. Sorry. I figure this stuff out. Um, I have prescience into the future of these very important competitions. So um, I, I anyway, so I yes, I reviewed uh, Rise of Phoenix this year. I picked it out of the hat of sorts. This year, we did not get to cover all the Eurovision songs uh, in case it wasn't screamingly obvious by the like what less than 30 something videos um, that we wound up producing this year. Um, but towards the end of the run of the videos, I, 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 I sort of went through saw the songs that were most interesting to me, and I was like, okay, yeah, bearded drag queen singing a, a rockin' James Bond song. Like, this has to be covered. Um, it's a great song in and of itself. Like, just... I, I'm, I'm making this sweeping motion with my hands across my screen. Just, like, get the, the accusations of it being a gimmick. Get the bearded drag queen stuff off the table for a second, right? It, I, think, I think it is just a, a wonderful piece of pop music performed vocally with a lot of vocal um, uh, uh, panache by the singer. And uh, just for that alone, uh, was absolutely a contender. And then you just throw on top of that the, the beer drag queen component of it, right? I mean, you have this uh, uh, phenomenon going on here, like in, in, in marketing, people talk about differentiation, right? You differentiate your product from the, from the pack of, uh, you know, of uh, people who just like stand up there and sing a good song, right? How do you differentiate? Well, you, you put a beer drag queen out there. Um, so all, all that was just like a great that, com- wait, combination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I didn't watch the competition, but I did watch the Overthinking It videos because on, on Saturday and oh, I followed it all on Twitter. Um, yeah, well, you know, that's the way I like to cons- consume Eurovision, purely through the overthinking it lens and no other way. No, but I obviously Twitter uh, was absolutely and Tumblr and Facebook was absolutely full of the Eurovision commentary, at least uh, for me, following mostly UK people. Um, but and some of the discourse, I wonder if drag queen was quite the right word. I read some Drink. interviews. To- <laughs> jesting and i'm aware that we are apparently you know five uh, cisgendered men here that um he or uh i think the pronouns tend to be we used were being she um the pronoun of preference there that mm-hmm. she had chosen uh as kind of identifying as more intersex or kind of um non-binary gendered so a drag queen is binary gendered a drag queen is a man who has dressed as an extreme version of a woman, whereas maybe Conchita is actually something other than a drag queen. I don't know. In doing the research, did you get a sense of that transgender discourse? I, I, and is I that something to, we should discuss? <laughs> I started to look into it, and I know that that's just like, I'd be walking in a minefield if I tried yeah, to, uh, yeah. to to come down on any one of that. So the answer is, I don't know. Like, drag queen okay. is just like my go-to there. Also, just on a completely side tangent note, I just got back. Well, well, yesterday I saw Hedwig and the Angry Inch on Broadway, which is certainly like I. I, I think that actually you could argue that might not be a drag character, right, of, of Hedwig, but it's a drag performance because it's usually by a male, a a traditionally gendered male performing a drag. But like I said, I'm walking into a minefield here. I don't know what's going on with that. It's it's complicated, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and I I hear part of the popularity maybe was a little kind of uh, thumbing of the nose to Russia. Uh, and Russia was booed yeah, yeah. during the points. I heard about giving. that, yeah. Um, 
And yet, and yet, uh, Russia still gave Ukraine seven points. And uh, perhaps more surprisingly, Ukraine gave uh, Russia four points. But I think if you far look at the tele- gave them last year. Well, yes, but I think if you looked at the telephone voting, uh, I imagine you'd see a slight Eastern bias on the people voting for the Russian song. Um, and uh, yeah, but let's not also forget. Let's like you know, I know this is overthinking it, right? We are um, subjecting this popular culture to definitely to a level of scrutiny it doesn't deserve. But uh, Russia's song last year was a lot better than the song this year, right? I mean, like it was last year's like treacly power ballad was still a power ballad, and that was powerful. Um, and this year's uh, it was Shine. Is that what it was? It was just oh, like kinda, the kind of there. The twins? twins. Yeah, it was the twins. I don't remember how the song goes. And it's, it's it's quite forgettable. Yeah, but last year was like a a, a great um, uh, Kelly yeah, Clarkson. What was powerful. it called? Like what if or what something? If. The the chorus was what like what if, if we all opened our eyes. There you go. Yeah. 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 That's hey, great. with that voice, do you reckon you could do Romania as well from last year? <laughs> like, can we, I think the other part of it was that t- 2014 was a much more conventional year musically than uh, 2013, and that everyone's going all faux Mumford and Sons, like in terms of the music. Yeah, I, I didn't get the chance to listen to the entire field of Eurovision songs. I'd say I got to a third to a half of them. And from what I could tell, um, the horrible dubstep trend uh, has tapered yep. off tapered off last from last year to this year uh, I, I didn't get a good read on sort of them be careful be careful though mark when you call it a dubstep trend because in some of my videos when i made jokes uh, about dubstep i got a lot of well actually this is not dubstep but is in fact and then some other like micro genre of music that i had that i had never heard of uh so this, you know yeah this is still one discussion. of the nicer comments right <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know right uh, yeah I, this, I still... this eurovision conversation is just littered with minefields here right on you know, like gender it's... classification Music classification. <laughs> what is Crimea? Um, we, look, you know, like the Bosnian Wars were a long time ago, but the minefields last for generations. So, yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Like the people in Crimea, right? <laughs> Where do their votes count? I assume that the European Broadcasting Union was just like, these are going in a, a special filing tray that will count when we found out where Crimea belongs. <laughs> and as soon as that's figured out, all of those votes will go to that country. But until then, we're not making a judgment. Uh. Um, but uh, the other... Is, uh, is, European, is, is Eurovision influencing, or in fact, maybe even funding, the Scottish drive for independence so that they can get their own... <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the promise of North Sea oil that will turn out to not be there is what's funding that, um, which was also what was funding much of the UK economy, and hence why there's none of the oil left. Um, I why think, why I would think... you take imaginary over, over oil over real heart? That's what I, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if Scotland are thinking about that, but they would probably they get a lot of the. Um, kind of not the British cachet that loses us all the points. Um, I just wanted to say that the one other thing is that um, a lot of the people saying, you know, well done, Conchita, you know, screw you, Russia, and screw you, you, UKIP, which is the UK's separatist party that wants out of the European Union, which is different to the European Broadcasting Union. If we went independent from Europe, I'm sure we'd still be part of Eurovision. Um, but they, they are also known to, for being kind of right-wing and homophobic and transphobic and women-phobic and all sorts. So this very idea that actually Conchita was quite well adopted in Britain as, you know, um, this symbol of um, progression and, you know, Russia's backwards-looking and our political parties who look backwards, his, who we think is, you know, the best singer in Europe and... Um, you know, we don't go with that. 
looking backwards. We look forwards, uh, and apparently what we see is a person who appears as a woman apart from the beard. Uh, so looking forwards, I see the end of a podcast. So uh, we may rise like a phoenix, listeners, but you are our flame, uh, and we thank you for that. If you'd like to join the conversation about 24, about Eurovision, uh, about Conchita Verst, about uh, anything we've talked about, um, we don't have time for your listener feedback. Uh, no, we no, have Matt, plenty. Matt, we have time for their listener feedback. I just checked. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, yes, uh, well, if it's 4 o'clock, We'll be we'll be having tea and uh, and listening to your feedback. Uh, you can give it to us at at podcast at overthinking it dot com. You can call two zero three two eight five six four zero one. Call or text that number, or you can join the conversation on the show notes. Uh, in the comments on the show notes for this podcast. Uh, we thank very much our special guest, Tim Swan, who is also the host of the Psychomedia podcast. I'll put a link in it because uh, oh, I've, tried to, I've tried to spell it several, several oh, times yeah, and yeah, failed yeah. at every time. But Tim, how is, how is, that, uh, how is your podcast going? Uh, well, with all of the stolen listeners from Overthinking It as we carry on, it's going uh, really well. We're coming up on our 100th episode. We keep finding like actual primary research each week to talk about. Uh, so if you want to hear some actually quite in-depth science with a lot of silly uh, jokes, then uh, do listen. I think if you like Overthinking It, you probably will like it uh, for this taking uh, serious stuff not too seriously or taking not too serious stuff very seriously. Um, you know, we were inspired, I think, by that sort of attitude. So, yeah, uh, psychomedia, which is uh, without any H's because it is the combination of psychology, comedy and media. But just check the link in the show notes. Excellent. Uh, so we'll have a link for that in the show notes. I also thank our military advisor, Ben Adams. Of course. Uh, our uh, our Austrian uh, drag performance expert, Mark Lee. Rise like a phoenix out of Sorry. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Get away. <laughs> and our, uh, our uh, American interlocutor of the British, Pete Fenzel. Damn it! <laughs> uh, <laughs> Where's my supper? I have no cold meats. Chloe, I need cold meats now. We don't have time to have warm meats. <laughs> we don't. We don't have time to warm the meats. Um, you know, I don't know if anybody knows this, uh, but I, I put our Twitter handles in the show notes on on every episode. So if you would like to uh, follow any of us on Twitter, um, you can find uh, you can find that on uh, on the show notes for this episode. We'll be back with more overthinking at podcast next week. Until then, for TV recaps, for text articles, and for uh, forum posts, and much much more, you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve am I late to the podcast like the whole copy that thing that's 24 as well I like I think Benzel is the only things I know about 24. Uh, well, you know what? I'm the only things that most people know about Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true. That's a pop culture property that I only hear in your voice. Well, so, I'll tell you this. At no time in 24 does Jack Bauer pee fire. So if you're yes. waiting for that. Yes. Yes. yes you know, he doesn't have time for good, like, hygiene and healthcare. He could get a UTI. <laughs>